Lord, we come before you, God, and I pray that you would give us teachable, humble hearts, Lord, that we would receive from you what you desire us to chew on today. God, I pray that your word would change us from the inside out, Lord, that we would understand what biblical freedom is, and we would choose to walk in it. So we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would guide us as we study your word, uh, God, that you would bring conviction and encouragement, and again, uh, change us, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't leave uh, the same. God, we know that your word is living and powerful, and we want to see the power of your word today. So we ask that you would help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through the epistle to the Galatians, we know a central theme is the theme of grace. We are saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us. Salvation is a work of God, not of man. And as Paul has been emphasizing this theme of grace, we see he's gone about it in different ways. That's where we... Look at this outline that we've been discussing. In the first two chapters, Paul was focusing on his personal experiences with grace. This is how I've seen the grace of God in my life. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul focuses on the doctrine of grace. This is what the Bible teaches about grace. And in chapters 5 and 6, we look at the practical application of grace. We just entered into this third portion of the outline last week. And Paul, he starts off that portion by saying, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. To live a life of grace is ultimately to live a life of freedom. Grace shouldn't teach us to sin and justify our sin. No, it should teach us the opposite. Grace should teach us to do away with our sin. Christ freed us from our sin and we're charged to stand fast in that freedom, not to return to it. So as he discusses this biblical idea of freedom, he finishes in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 and he says... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. This is what biblical freedom ultimately comes down to. My faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ should manifest itself in a way that expresses love towards God and love towards others. This is what freedom is really all about. The title of this teaching is freed to love, freed to love. God has freed us to love him and love others. The freedom that the Bible teaches about is not a selfish freedom. It's not a, I'm free to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. No, the freedom that the Bible teaches us about is a freedom that's focused on others, a freedom that's focused on God. It's a freedom that's selfless. Paul is going to make that clear as he elaborates on the freedom that the gospel offers here in Galatians chapter 5 verses 7 to 15. Let's look at the first verse in verse 7. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
He says, Galatians, you started off strong. I saw the Lord show up in your life. I saw fruit in your life. And maybe there was zeal. Maybe there was passion. But Paul knew that they started off this race running well. After a strong start with your relationship with the Lord, do you find yourself being hindered? Do you find yourself going backwards? Do you find yourself, after starting off so strong, returning to the very things that Christ delivered you from? Proverbs says it like this. In Proverbs 26, verse 11, it says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Think about this. As a dog returns to his vomit. I have two dogs. They eat some nasty stuff. Let me tell you. They'll, they'll bring in dead birds that they've chewed up. They're obsessed with, with, with any type of animal that's dead. They want to roll around in it. They want to eat it. Uh, they eat throw up. They eat their throw up. They eat Jude's throw up. They eat anybody's throw up that just happens to be lying around during that day. It's disgusting, right? It's gross. I love my dogs, but it's like, what are you doing? Why are you returning to your thoughts? You threw that up for a reason. Your body rejected that. And we look at that and we go, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's gross. But that's how God sees us when we return to the very things that he delivered us from. Because, dude, you rejected that lifestyle for a reason. That sin made you sick to your stomach for a reason. There was conviction for a reason. Why do you want to go back there? You left all that behind for a reason. Don't return to your vomit. Don't return to the very things that are destroying you. Is there something in your life that you continue to keep doing that makes you sick to your stomach? You're getting sick to your stomach for a reason. God wants to use that 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 sickness, that disgustingness, that grossness, that conviction, in other words, to lead you to repentance. Throw it up. Walk away from it. Don't return to it. It's making you sick. God wants you to be free from it. He says, you ran well. You started off strong. And he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is point number one. Obey the truth. Despite hindrances, obey the truth despite hindrances. Now, this word hindered, it means cutting in to break up a road, to render it impassable. Now, this is actually an athletic term that he's using. Paul, he often uses these athletic terms and illustrations. Why? Well, uh, probably one of the big reasons is because uh, during this Greco-Roman influence in the world, uh, people were all about the games, the Olympic games, these gladiator games, all these various types of games. So part of it is Paul probably uh, trying to meet these people where they're at, trying to help uh, give them an illustration uh, regarding something that they're interested in. But it could also be that Paul himself was interested in this stuff. But Paul very well with all the illustrations.
illustrations that he uses uh, about athletics could have been a big sports fan. Uh, maybe that's the reality. Maybe that's the truth. If it is the truth, it makes me like him even more uh, because I'm a big sports fan. I, I, I love sports. But we see Paul, he's using a, an athletic term. And this athletic term um, has great implications. And it'll help us if we understand how this term was typically used. Now, in races during that time period, they didn't run around an oval track like we see now. Uh, what they would do is they had uh, a a starting line and the starting line was also the finish line and you would run to a post and back. Okay, so you'd run to a post and back and what racers would do is as a strategy to win the race, typically once they got to the post specifically, they would try to take an angle to cut off the other racers. Why? So that they don't win the race and the person that cut them off wins the race. This is how this word is often used. So there are people, Paul says, who has hindered you from running your race, who has hindered you from obeying the truth. Someone had been hindering them. Someone cut them off. Someone was preventing them from continuing this race of faith. Do you feel like you've been hindered or do you feel like you're being hindered from running this race of faith? Is something holding you back? Is something preventing you from finishing well? Sometimes the hindrances that we face in the present are really rooted in past problems. Sometimes the present things that we're facing aren't really the problem. They're just a symptom of the problem. And the real problem goes way back. Paul's asking him, who's hindered you? Where'd you go wrong? Where'd you get off course? How did you get to this place where you're believing a false gospel? How did you get to this place where you're living in sin against the one true God? How did you get there? You got to look back and go, oh. It was then the problems that I'm facing now are really rooted in this situation way back when. Paul says, who, how, why, how'd you get to this place? How'd you get off the right path? Was it something that somebody taught you that was really a lie and it wasn't true? Did you start believing lies about God or about yourself? Did you have a difficult situation with another person that led you to this heart of bitterness and resentment did you have a difficult situation with god where you started doubting you started questioning his love towards you if you're on the wrong wrong path you gotta evaluate how did i get here where did i go wrong where did i take a wrong turn because if we're just focusing on the problem set before us more often than not, we're not really solving the problems. We often have to go backwards before we can go forwards. We see this in the Bible. One example is with Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, we see Jacob wrestle with God. Now he actually wrestles with God, but he had been wrestling with God most of his life. And so God says, finally, I'm going to come down and wrestle with this guy because I love him and I need to teach him a lesson. He's been fighting against me too long. I need to teach him something. So what did he teach him? Well, he asked him, Jacob, what's your name? 
Why is the omniscient God, the all-knowing God, asking Jacob his name? Doesn't God, because he knows all things, know Jacob's name? Yes. He's not asking him because he doesn't know. He's trying to bring him back to his past, to the root of his problem. Why? Because Jacob was known as the deceiver. He deceived people left and right. And his deception started many years back when he was a young man. His deception started when he pretended to be Esau. And his father asked him, what is your name? And Jacob said, I'm Esau. And he deceived his father so that he would get the birthright, so that he would get, he would get um, uh, the blessing. And he did. He fooled his father. Well, that led to a lifestyle of deception, a lifestyle of pretending, uh, a lifestyle of manipulation. He ended up deceiving his uncle. He ended up deceiving Esau. He, he was a deceiver. So God, he asks Jacob, what is your name? Why? Because he's trying to bring him back to the root of the problem. This is why you're having all these problems. It's from this thing way back then. And, and until you address the root of the problem, you're not going to be able to move forward. You're not going to be able to finish your race. You're going to be hindered. Sometimes the problem. Or at least sometimes what we think is the problem. It's not really the problem. It, it goes way back. It's something in our hearts that has to be revisited, that has to be addressed. If you find yourself hindered in your relationship with God, maybe it's not as strong as it used to be. I encourage you to ask God, hey, bring me back to the root of this. Where did I go wrong? Lord, where did I take the wrong step? Why am I being hindered in my relationship with you? For the Galatians, we know what it was, at least generally speaking. We know that they were hindered because of false teaching in the church. These Judaizers were saying, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to keep the Mosaic law if you really want to be saved. You need to become a Jew if you really want to be saved. We're not really saved by grace through faith, they would say. Uh, you need to work for your salvation. And Paul says that that's completely wrong. So these, these people in the region of Galatia, these believers, are being hindered because of false teaching in the church. That's why it's so pivotal for us to engage in and seek out good Bible teaching. False teaching will hinder you in your relationship with the Lord. We see it with the Galatians. It says here, who hindered you from what? From obeying the truth. Running the Christian race is more than knowing the truth. It's more than hearing the truth. It's more than believing the truth. It's obeying the truth. Why? Because if I truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He died on the cross for my sins and rose again, and I believe that He is Lord over my life, that He created all things, and I'm making Him Lord over my life, then I'm going to listen to what He says. If I truly trust the gospel, then I'm going to purpose to live a life of obedience to the Lord. If I truly love the Lord, then I'm going to purpose to live a life of obedience. Why? Because Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Our obedience is a litmus test to evaluate our measure of love towards the Lord. If I'm walking in obedience, that's evidence that I truly love the Lord. But if I'm not listening to anything the Lord says and I just keep doing my own thing, then there's a lack of love there. There's a disconnect. And we don't 
obey to receive God's love or to earn God's love. God loves us whether we're obedient or disobedient. But if we truly love him, we're going to purpose to do the things that he says for us to do. We are not saved by obedience. We are saved by grace through faith. But so much of our sanctification, our growth and maturity as believers comes down to our obedience. Am I listening to the convictions of the Holy Spirit and purposing to walk in his ways? Or am I grieving? Am I quenching the Holy Spirit and walking in disobedience? So many of the problems that we face in our life are rooted in simple disobedience. So many of the problems that we face in our life, we bring them on ourselves. Now, that's not to say every problem is because we're disobedient. We see Job. He was the most righteous man in the land. His trials, his suffering didn't come from his disobedience. It was a a test. God was testing his faith and he endured, not perfectly, but he ultimately endured. So we know that every problem isn't rooted in disobedience, but disobedience, but, but many of our problems are. And sometimes we go, man, I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this tribulation. And if you really ask the Lord, he'd tell you, maybe you brought this on yourself. Maybe it's because you just won't listen to me. I'm trying to tell you how to get out of this situation, but you keep going back, back to it. He says, who's hindered you from obeying the truth? He goes on in verse 8, he says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. He says, what you're being taught is not from God. It's a message of man, but it's not a message from God. If someone teaches you anything that contradicts the basic tenets of our faith, the identity of Jesus Christ and the truth of his crucifixion and resurrection, if people get away from that, And they're teaching the teachings of man, but it is not the teachings of God. John says it like this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just that it has taught you, you will abide in him. He says, I'm writing you these things so that no one tries to deceive you, so that you pick up when people are telling you things that contradict the truth that was revealed to you, not by man, but by the Holy Spirit, that moment that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There was a moment that the Lord awakened you to the reality of His person and the implications of His works, the the work of the cross and the work of the resurrection. And that moment that you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that moment wasn't because of the persuasive words of men. It was because of the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. It was because of the persuasion of God himself. Let me show you in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just asked the disciples, who are people saying that I am? Who do men say that I am? And, uh, yeah, some say you're a prophet, Elijah, you know, who knows? And then he says, here's the important question. Who do you as an individual say that I am? So he says here in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He says, you are not persuaded by man to recognize who I am. You are persuaded by God himself. See, If someone can persuade us, if a man can persuade us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then another man can persuade us not to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We're only able to be awakened to the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, not the persuasive words of men. See, these Judaizers, They were persuading and they were good at persuading, we know, because the people started following them. They were persuading these Galatians to trust in their own ability to keep the law instead of trusting Christ and his finished work on the cross. This teaching was not divinely inspired. It was demonically inspired. This teaching was from the pits of hell, the enemy. He wants us to put our trust in ourselves. He he wants us to believe that we have an obligation to earn our salvation. Uh, He wants us to believe that it's our good works, it's our good merits that allow us to enter into the kingdom of God. He wants us to put in our trust in ourselves. Why? Because if we're putting our trust in ourselves, then we're not putting our trust in God. We put our trust in the Lord. We put our trust in ourselves, but not both. I either trust myself to earn salvation or I trust that I cannot earn salvation. I trust that only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can I be saved. These Judaizers are trying to persuade these Galatians that it's up to them, that it's up to them to earn their salvation. So he goes on, he says in verse 9, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is a little bit of leaven. All it takes is a little bit of yeast to make bread rise. Anyone that's baked bread knows this. You just need a little bit of yeast to make bread rise. Leaven we see throughout the Bible is a picture of sin. A little bit of leaven corrupts the whole body. A little bit of leaven, guess what? It doesn't just stay a little bit of leaven. It grows. It becomes more and more. Sin, don't get it twisted. Don't believe the lie that your sin is just going to stay the same. It will either get worse or you'll repent of it. But if you believe the lie that I can manage my sin, I can handle my sin, and yeah, it's kind of bad, but but I'm going to maintain it on this level. That is a lie from the pits of hell. It will either continue to grow, and ultimately, James 1 says, bring forth death and destruction, or it'll be dealt with. It's one or the other. You can't manage your sin. You can't maintain the sin. Either let it keep growing so it destroys you, or, or you deal with it, or you cut it off. Or rather... Ask the Lord to cut it off. Ask the Lord to deal with it. So he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Specifically in this passage, Paul's referring uh, to false doctrine, namely the false doctrine of the Judaizers saying uh, that you have to become a Jew to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved. Uh, A little bit of trust in the law contaminates the whole gospel. A little bit of trust in the law contaminates the whole gospel. In other words, a little bit of trust in my ability to win God's love and affection contaminates the whole meaning of the gospel. The gospel is because God loved you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's grace, unearned, unmerited favor from God. So if you start even believing a little bit that I got to earn God's love, I got to earn God's favor, that's completely opposite of the gospel. That corrupts the meaning of the gospel. We simply receive it. Jesus spoke of something similar in regards to leaven and doctrine. In Matthew chapter 16 as well, we were just there. If you look at verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples were confused as to what Jesus was talking about, but he clarifies, and then they say in verse 12, you jump there, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, beware of false teaching. Beware of false doctrine believers are subject to accepting false doctrine as well. Believers are subject uh, uh, to being carried away by false things, by false teachings that contradict the word of God. Once you start accepting a little bit of false doctrine, it opens up the door for you to accept all kinds of false doctrine. Once the enemy can plant those seeds of doubt in the basic tenets of our faith, the basic tenets of the gospel, then eventually he can get you to doubt the whole thing, to question it all. Jesus isn't God. The resurrection never happened. Jesus didn't die on a cross. The Bible isn't inerrant. The Bible isn't inspired. It's all allegory. It's not real historical events. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, then he's just another man. He's just a martyr, and that's it. If the resurrection didn't happen, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us we're still dead in our sins. If the resurrection didn't happen, then there is no hope for eternal life. Our hope for eternal life is contingent not just upon the cross, but also the resurrection. He says if there is no resurrection, we are still dead and damned. the Bible is full of errors, then what parts can I trust? If the Bible is all allegory, then is any of it true? If the Bible isn't truly inspired by God, it's just men uh, writing down what they feel like God wants to say, then can I trust any of it? No. See, the enemy wants to plant those seeds of doubt, get you to believe false doctrine, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you can plant that one seed of doubt, that seed of doubt will grow and grow and grow. Before you know it, as you accept more and more false doctrine, you'll start actually believing a faith that doesn't save. You'll believe in a gospel that won't save you. So these Judaizers, they're spreading this false teaching, causing problems in the church. The leaven is spreading. So he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul still has confidence in them. Why? Because his confidence isn't rooted in them. His confidence is rooted, as he says, in the Lord. 
He knows that God can change them still, despite how things appear, despite the fact that they've fallen from grace, despite the fact that they're backslidden. Paul knows that God can still change them because he knows the God that lives inside of them. He, he preached the gospel to these people. He watched them receive the gospel. He had to have seen some fruit in their lives in order for him to have this confidence. He, he knows that the living God can still change them. He knows that the living God can change their mind. He, he knows that the living God can expose these lies that they're believing about the gospel and turn them back to the truth. He knows this. Why? Love believes all things. Love believes all things. See, my faith in your growth is not rooted in my perception of how far you've come, of how much you serve, of how much you read your Bible. My faith in your growth is rooted in the God that lives inside of you. And if the living God, If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, I know, I know, I know that he is going to finish the work that he started in you. That he is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he's going to continue to shift your perspective. He's going to shift your mind. He's going to shift your actions. That all those things are going to happen. So despite what everything looks like in your life, if God lives in you, you can be confident that he ain't done with you yet. He's still got a work to do do in you. And God isn't a God who quits on what he starts. He's a God who finishes what he starts. He says to them, I have confidence in, in the Lord that you will have no other mind. God or sorry, Paul believes that the Lord is ultimately going to change their minds. Why? When we accept the Lord, the Bible says, you've been given the mind of Christ. You know, we've been given his perspective. Not that we think perfectly like him, but as we're influenced by the Holy Spirit, we do start changing the way we think about things. The Holy Spirit starts changing our perception of things, uh, how we see this world, how we see sin. He says that you will have no other mind, that you will be like-minded with me, sharing the same mind as Christ. And he says, but he who judges shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He says, whoever is spreading this false teaching, ultimately they need to answer to God. They will be judged by God. In James chapter three, verse one, it says, teachers receive a stricter judgment. It's a terrifying verse, right? Teachers receive a stricter judgment. Every false teacher will be judged for every false word that they preach. Sometimes that judgment isn't in the next life. Sometimes people face various forms of judgment for false teaching in this life. But ultimately, those who spread a false teaching, who spread a false gospel, they'll be damned. And and Paul knows that. He says, hey, they're going to have to answer to God eventually. It says in verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. It seems that the Judaizers started a rumor that Paul was still preaching circumcision. We preach the same gospel as Paul. It's, it's not different. He still preaches circumcision. Um, now, we know Paul wasn't preaching circumcision. He makes that very clear in this epistle. 
However, we do see later on in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, that he had that young pastor Timothy. He had him circumcised. And he had him circumcised right after he concluded with the other church leaders in Acts chapter 15 that we aren't saved through circumcision. We're saved by faith. And they make that very clear. Believers don't need to be circumcised. Male believers don't need to be circumcised to solidify their salvation. And then he goes and he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't he contradicting himself? No. He wasn't having Timothy circumcised to seal Timothy's salvation. He was having Timothy circumcised because Timothy was half Jewish. And he wanted Timothy to be used by God greatly. And he knew that if the Jewish unbelievers found out that Timothy wasn't circumcised, then they would cast him out. They would think of him as just some uh, other Gentile, that, that they have no, he has no place to have a conversation with them or be under the same roof, roof as them. So Paul had Timothy encouraged him to get circumcised so that he could advance the kingdom of God. He says it like this in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 20. Paul himself, he says, uh, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jew. So it's the same thing about the Greeks. So the Greeks, I became as a Greek that I might win the Greeks. I become all things to all men so that by all means, some might be saved. So Paul, he would meet people where they were at. He honored their culture. He honored, um, honored their, their practices to an extent. Uh, so when he was around the Jews, there are certain things that, that he wouldn't do. Uh, he probably kept a kosher diet around the Jews. Not that he had to, but he wanted to, to respect them because he knew if he respected them, then that opened up a door for him to share his faith and ultimately for them to be saved. So these Judaizers are likely spreading this rumor that Paul is preaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. But he says it's not true. If I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? In other words... If Paul still preached circumcision, then why is he facing persecution from the Jewish community? Why is the Jewish community out to get him if he's just preaching the same thing that they're preaching? He faced persecution because he maintained that Jews and Gentiles are equal under the new covenant. That God doesn't see the Jews as greater than the Gentiles. Now it's a problem because the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles. They pray, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner, a woman, or a Gentile. They're a slave. They exalted themselves. They thought that God chose them because of some other reason other than the fact that they, that they were weak and they were helpless and God chose them for specific purposes uh, for his glory. So Paul makes it clear that no, we're, we're all equal in the sight of God, whether you're a man or a woman, a child, elderly, elderly, whether you speak a different language or are from a different country, God loves us all the same. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you just got saved today. None of that matters. God loves us all the same. So he says... Why do I still face persecution? He's facing persecution because he's sharing the true gospel. And Jesus said, hey, if you're really going to try to do this thing, if you're really going to try to be my disciples, walk the way I walk, talk the way I talk, preach the message that I preached, then inevitably you are going to face persecution. He told the disciples this in John chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. 
Later on in verse 33, he says, in this world, you will have tribulations. Paul knew that. If I'm really living for Christ, if I'm really sharing the gospel, then I'm going to face persecution. And Paul knew persecution more than anyone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he discusses all the various things that he's faced for living for Jesus. He talks about being scourged. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being stoned next to death. If anyone knew suffering for the gospel, it was Paul. Paul knew that it was part of it. It was part of the faith. If I'm really going to try to do this thing, I'm going to suffer persecution. It's a promise from Jesus. It's not just a promise for the disciples then. It's a promise to the disciples now. Those who purpose to follow Jesus now, you're going to face different forms of persecution. Now, uh, most of us will never face what Paul faced or what Jesus faced. Most of us will never uh, be scourged or, or stoned or uh, a lot of these things we just don't do anymore. Uh, most of us uh, will never even be martyred for our faith. But persecution comes in various forms. Sometimes it's not physical affliction. Sometimes it's verbal abuse. Sometimes, and I think one of the greatest forms of persecution is spiritual warfare. The enemy comes after you through temptation, throwing those fiery darts, those lies. When he sees you advancing the kingdom, when he sees you fulfilling your calling, when he sees you stepping up to to walk in the purpose that God created you for, being a disciple that makes disciples... He sees that and goes, I need to stop this. I need to hinder this. And the enemy himself will bring persecution against us. But if we're not facing any persecution in our lives, or we never have, it comes in waves. And we got to ask ourselves, does my walk look too much like the world and not enough like the Lord? Because Jesus said, if we're living for him, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I've never faced, if I've never faced any hardships from people, or the enemy, physical, verbal, emotional, spiritual, if I never face any of that, I've got to evaluate and go, hey, am I really doing this thing? Paul was doing it and he was facing consequences for doing it. Just as Jesus promised. And he says here, <clears throat> and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. This is point number two. An inoffensive gospel is not the gospel. An inoffensive gospel is not the gospel. This word offense, it means stumbling block. See, the cross, specifically the cross, was offensive. It it caused people to stumble in the ancient world as it does for us today. Let me show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross threw people off. Why? Culturally, it caused big problems. The Romans considered the cross an abomination. It was the most cruel, gruesome act of capital punishment. It was the most sickening thing they would come, could come up with. It was so gruesome and gross that Roman citizens weren't allowed to be uh, uh, given ca- uh, this form of capital punishment. Uh, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. They reserved it for people that weren't Roman citizens. So they wouldn't even do this to their own. They would do this to people that weren't their own. 
This was a problem. Why would God in the flesh come and have to die on the cross? Why would he have to face this thing that we think is an abomination? For the Jews, the crucifixion meant you were cursed. Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. It's in Deuteronomy. So how can a cursed Messiah save anyone? How does that do any good for anyone? This was a stumbling block. This caused offense. This tripped people up. Just as much as the gospel caused offense then, so too does it now. The gospel is offensive. When you tell somebody, you are a sinner, (laughs) you've sinned against God, and because of your sin, you're going to hell, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And there's no one else that can save you. Jesus is the only way. By believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, you can get heaven. You can avoid hell. But if you choose any other way, you ain't having it. You're going to hell. The gospel it's not about what you do for God. It's about what he does for you. So it doesn't matter if, if you think your, your good outweighs your bad on the scales of justice. It doesn't matter how much good you do for God. All the goodness in the world isn't enough for you to get to heaven. You got to be perfect. When you tell people that, it's offensive. Well, I live a good life. Yeah, I might be a sinner, but you're probably worse than I am. Might be true. But the point is, we're all sinners. And none of us can live up to the standard. When you tell people this, you can't put your trust in yourself. You got to put your trust in God. It's offensive. People don't like hearing it. So what happens? Sadly today, people in their effort to make the gospel less offensive, they water it down and they start preaching a gospel that doesn't save. They'll say things like, yeah, when Jesus said he was the way, he really meant a way. Like, it doesn't matter. My way is Jesus, but, but you could go a different way. Like you could put your trust in Krishna or you can follow the teachings of Buddha or, or you can believe in Allah and, and Muhammad. Like that's all good. You go that way. I go this way. We all make heaven. Like we all get to go to heaven. Like hell's not a real place. Like well, how could a loving God send people to hell? This is watering down the gospel and people do this all the time. First of all, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. Hell is not a place that God created to to punish people for their sins. Hell is a place specifically created for the angels and demons. And what it is, it's the absence of God. It's what it is. So it's the absence of love. It's the absence of goodness. It's the absence of kindness. It's the absence of everything good and light and life in this world. And people water down the gospel. You, you don't really need accountability with the body of Christ. You got this on your own. You just need a relationship with, with Jesus, but 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 you don't need to go to church or anything like that. You you don't need to connect with other believers. Uh, you can love God without loving His bride. You just need to trust Jesus for eternal life, but you don't need to trust Him in this life. You don't need to trust Him. It's like do whatever you want in this life. You, you just continue. You can continue the way that you want to live. Uh, you can accept the gospel and just keep practicing what you're practicing. This is watering down the gospel. These things aren't true. That's not what the Bible teaches. But because the gospel is so offensive, people get fearful. They start watering it down. And eventually they water it down so much that they're preaching a false gospel. It's not true. Paul. His problem was that the Judaizers 
were watering it down in the sense that they were preaching circumcision. Yeah, you have to put, let's say, 80% of your trust in Jesus, but 20% of your trust in yourself and your ability to keep the law. You don't have to trust Jesus fully. You just have to trust him this much, and then the rest is up to you, and you can trust yourself to perform good works. Paul makes it clear that you either preach the cross or you preach circumcision, but you can't preach both. It's one or the other. The, the cross points to, obviously, Christ's work for us. Circumcision points to my work for God. Uh, what I can do for God, how I can please God, how I can do things to win God's love and win his affections. He says, that's not the gospel. Only through the cross can we be made right with God. The text continues, verse 12. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Uh, Paul's saying, this is crazy, but Paul is saying that I wish the Judaizers would castrate themselves. Uh, I wish they would castrate themselves. Now, we have to understand culture uh, to understand context in this passage. It was common in the southern region of Galatia, especially, well, in the whole region, uh, that there were these certain uh, cults and religions where the priest would actually castrate themselves. They would cut themselves completely off. Uh, so what, what Paul is saying is basically, uh, if, if mutilating your flesh makes you more right with God, then why don't you just go all the way? If a little circumcision is going to help you out with God, we might as well just cut the whole thing off. It's crazy, right? But Paul, he's speaking practically to hit home a spiritual lesson, okay? Because these, at least the, the Jewish believers uh, who were familiar with the Old Testament law would have picked up on this. It's in Deuteronomy, if you want to write it down, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. If someone was castrated, they were to be cut off from the congregation. So they're cut off from the people of God and God. Okay, so he's saying, really, uh, this brutal remark, but what he's saying is, I, I wish that they were spiritually cut off from the body of Christ. I wish they were cut off from the people of God. I wish they were cut off from God. Uh, I wish they would no longer have influence uh, among the church because of their false teaching. He goes on to say, we'll just get to verse 15 today. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not lose your, use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, you've been called by Christ to live a life of freedom. Christ died for you so that you would be free, not so that you would return to bondage. He already delivered you from all that. He wants you to be free. He wants you to experience freedom. He desperately desires you to walk in freedom. He can just free you from the consequences of your sin in the future. He frees you from the bondage of sin in the present. He wants you to live a life from, for, of freedom. He wants his kids to be free, not bound, not returning to vomit, and not being sick to their stomach. He wants them to, to walk in relief that Jesus already paid it all. I'm going to live for him. When people look at your life, would they say this person lives a life of freedom or bondage? When they would look at your approach to Jesus, what would they see? What would they find? When you consider things like coming to church or, or reading the Bible or, or praying to God or coming to an outreach, whatever the case may be, is it always like, I got to do, man, I got to go to church today. Dang, we got to go to church today. Dang, I got to get up early and, and read my Bible. Dang, I got to pray right now. I got to do this. I got to do that. That's not freedom. 
That's just another form of bondage. It's religion. And Jesus didn't die for us to enter into another religion. He, he died so that we would enter into relationship. There's freedom in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants us to have the heart that now we have to do this, that, and the other, but we get to. Like, what? I get to pray to God? Like, Jesus died on a cross so that I could have fellowship with God? Like, this is a privilege. I get to come to church and learn about Jesus and connect with different people, uh, the bride of Christ. Uh, I get to wake up and, and read the Bible. And I have the Holy Spirit who, who illuminates the pages and helps me understand what's going on. These are all privileges. But if we see our relationship with Christ as a, I have to, then what you're really practicing is a religion. It's another form of bondage, but it's not the freedom that Christ died for you for. So he says, you've been called to liberty. Jesus died for your liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, there was a Greek proverb going around during this time, and it says the, the free man is the one who lives as he chooses. That's the free man. The free man, in other words, is the one who just does whatever he wants to do. It's kind of similar to our American idea of freedom. Uh, free to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, without anyone bothering you. It's not really freedom. It's a selfish form of freedom that's not real freedom. It's bondage to self. That's what it is. There's an expression in the 1960s, back when I, was, I wasn't around in the 1960s, there's this expression, free love, free love. And what are they saying? Uh, we, we have freedom to have sex with whoever we want. That's a, a free to love whoever I want. I'm free to have sex with him or her or this or that or whatever. If I want to do it, I'm going to do it. That's not freedom. That's not even love. It's lust. It's being bound to lust. Man, you want this type of freedom. But at what cost? This isn't really biblical freedom. This type of freedom has serious consequences, and that's what he's getting at. Don't let your freedom, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Uh, this word flesh is the Greek word sarx. Uh, it's the corrupt part of man that's inclined to sin. Uh, don't use your freedom to sin. Don't use your freedom to justify your lifestyle of sin. Jesus already forgave me. He died for all my sins, past, present, future. He forgets them. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. Paul says, don't continue in sin. Should I continue in sin so that grace should abound? Certainly not. No, no, no. That's a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of biblical freedom, of biblical grace. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, especially when it affects other people. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. You might be able to do something, but if it's causing your brother or sister to stumble, then it's a sin. It's wrong. Just because you have the freedom to do that or you're not convicted about this, if you're causing other people to stumble, he says that it's wrong. It's not right. Uh, don't use your freedom in a selfish sense. How should you use your freedom? He tells us in Galatians chapter 5. This is what freedom should look like. 
You know, I use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. That's a proper biblical understanding of freedom. Freedom is going to lead to a lifestyle of serving Christ and serving others. That's biblical freedom. This is point number three. Christ didn't just free you from your sin. He freed you from yourself. Christ didn't just free you from your sin. He freed you from yourself. So much of our misery comes from our selfishness. Uh, thinking everything is about us. The world revolves around us. The, the universe revolves around us. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we recognize this world ain't about me. It's about him. And he says, it's not just about me. It's about other people. It's about getting outside of self, focusing on the Lord and focusing on others. So many people fall into these lifestyles. First seasons, then lifestyles of misery. Most of the time, it's because they're just focusing on their self all the time. They're all so focused on their problems. They're all so focused on what they have to do, what they want to do, what pleases them. This is another form of bondage. It's not biblical freedom. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We'll experience true freedom when we realize that this life is about serving God and serving other people. It's not about serving self. That doesn't mean you can't take care of yourself. But it does mean that so much of our ministry and so much of our lack of joy is rooted in our lack of love towards God and other people. We're self-consumed, and it leads to problems. It leads to being miserable. So Paul says, Galatians chapter 5, last couple of verses, verse 14. <clears throat> For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, if, if you really want to fulfill the law, don't go get circumcised. Fulfill the law the right way. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said it like this in Mark 12, 29 to 31. When asked the greatest commandment, he gave him two. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He was asked to give one, he gave two. Why did he give two? Because those two go together. It is really one. If I'm loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Love your neighbor as yourself. How much do you love yourself? How often do you think about yourself? Because love's an action word. How often do you take care of yourself? How often do you consider yourself? The Bible says, uh, love people like you actively love yourself. I'm always on my mind. I'm always thinking about me. What am I going to do? What am I going to eat? What's my day going to look like? What am I going to say to all these people that come on Sunday? Me, 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 me. The Bible says, get out of that me talk. Start getting into that we talk. What about us? We're together here. What about them? What about her? What's this person going through? What's that person going through? How can I pray for this individual? How can I pray for that individual? How can I encourage this person? How can I encourage that person? And you know what happens when we do this? When we start focusing on God and focusing on other people? Joy. An exceeding amount of joy. We're so focused on everybody else that we forget about our problems, how bad they were. Wow, like I thought it was bad. I had a stomach ache and this person just lost a loved one. What am I doing complaining about a stomach ache? There's people going through way worse problems than me right now. 
And now I realize, man, I don't got it too bad. And how can I pray for this person? How can I encourage them? How can I love on them? Because love is often the avenue to break the bondage of sin. Actively pursuing love. Because it gets you outside of yourself. Lastly, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, last verse. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This is what legalism leads to. It, it leads to biting. It leads to backbiting. It leads to devouring one another. Why? Because everything becomes a competition. It's about how religious I am. How holy I am. How I'm more knowledgeable. How I'm more religious. How I work harder than you. I do more than you. Religiosity breeds competition, but love breeds unity. This is the fourth and final point. Religiosity breeds competition, but love's, love breeds unity. When we're walking in religiosity, we're so focused on what we're doing for God. And I want, to, I want people to know, hey, I'm doing more than you right now. I'm holier than you. I'm more spiritual than you. I got more on my plate than you. That's religiosity. Love breeds unity. When we're walking in love, we're going to want other people to be even closer to the Lord than ourselves. When we're walking in love, we're going to genuinely consider others better than ourselves. Man, wow, God just blessed that person with a promotion. Praise God, man. That might have been the job that I wanted, but praise God he blessed that person. Religiosity breeds competition. You often see churches competing and people competing for churches. Don't go to that church, go to our church. Don't go to that men's ministry, go to our men's ministry. Don't go to that women's ministry, go to our women's ministry. It's a competition. That's not the bride of Christ. We're all called to be in it together. And if we have the right heart, then we're going to be grateful. Wow, man, that church has taken off. If they're really teaching the word of God and people are really getting saved, praise God. I want them to be blessed over there. Now, I want God to use this ministry. I want God to use that ministry. Legalism, religiosity leads you to be, it will lead you to be so consumed by others that you lose focus on God. Man, they're so blessed. They have it so good. God's doing so much in their life. What about me? Woe is me. I have it so rough. I have it so difficult. God would ask you, is his grace not sufficient? Think about what he delivered you from. Think about the life that he's given you. It's better than what you deserve. It's entitlement. I think I deserve what this person has. And God reminds us, you don't deserve any of it. But because I love you, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you more than you could ask, think, or imagine. But quit focusing on how others might have it better than you. Quit competing with them in your hearts. See, Christ, he's freed us to love him and to love others. If we want to experience the freedom that the gospel offers, then we need to recognize that freedom exists through a lifelong desire and intention to serve God and consider others greater than ourselves. If we're so focused on ourselves, if we're so consumed by self, then we're going to continue to face bondage. So much of the sin in our life it's just selfish. I'm choosing to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's not freedom. That's not real freedom. 
Freedom is considering others better than myself. Freedom is considering how this action, how this choice glorifies God. And when we purpose to glorify God and edify others, then we'll experience the freedom that he offers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we pray that you would purge us of selfishness. God, we know so many of the problems that we face are rooted in selfishness and disobedience. Lord, we know that you love us just the way that we are, but we pray that you would pour out your love on us, God, that we would experience it, that it would be our motivation to live for you, God, that we would purpose to walk in the freedom that you died for, that we would purpose to walk as you walked and talk as you talked and think as you think, Jesus. And Lord, through that, you would break the bondage of sin in our lives, Lord, that we would experience the the joy that you want us to experience in this life, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.